Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. As always, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and after we get past our current world of travel restrictions and the like, you should definitely come spend some time on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Question. Is it humanly possible to run 100 miles without consuming a single calorie? And would it be possible to run 100 miles in under 24 hours without consuming a single calorie? Well, on May 8th, Mike McKnight set out to find out, and Mike, who is the record holder of the Triple Crown of 200s, not only accomplished the feat, he did it in 18 hours and 37 minutes. So I talked to Mike about why and when he first thought this might be possible, how he prepared and trained for the feat. We talk about intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet, and we talk about some of the criticisms he's taken for even attempting this. Now, personally, I don't understand the impulse to lob criticisms at someone who is pushing the limits of what is humanly possible. And I think what Mike has done is a phenomenal achievement. But give this conversation a listen and see for yourself and get the full play-by-play from Mike about how and why he did this and what else he thinks might be possible. Here we go. Well, Mike, I want to get going with sort of the big topic of the day here. Friday, May 8th, at 6 a.m., you set off to do something that I never heard of anyone successfully doing. And to be honest, I've never heard of anyone actually attempting. So tell us a little bit about what the idea was going into Friday, May 8th. So the idea was to go for a 100-mile run just here in Cache Valley, out my front door, finish at my front door. And the purpose of it was to see if I could do the full 100 miles without consuming any kind of calorie. And to, in terms of time, to do that in under 20 hours. Are you aware of other folks having attempted this or have done this? Maybe not under the 20-hour limit, but tell me a little bit about the history of this, unless you just kind of came up with this on your own. So I did come up with it on my own, but in preparation for it, I've learned of two people. Um, So one person who attempted it, his name was Mikey Skylar. And he is a, he's coached by Jeff Browning, just like I am. So um, that's how I was able to find out about it is because when I told Jeff that I wanted to do this, he introduced me to Mikey. So Mikey tried it twice, I believed, and he ended up taking in some calories around mile 75. So he made it pretty far. And then the other person that I heard of that sort of has done it is a guy named the Hungry Hiker. And it was quite a while ago, Davy Crockett talked about it on his podcast, but it's a guy that set out to hike. It was something crazy like a thousand miles without consuming any calories. Whoa. And 
he didn't make the full thousand, but he made it a few days, and I'm pretty sure he made it over a hundred miles. So those are the two names that I could think of that has somewhat attempted this um, or wanted to attempt this. So when did you first start thinking about this or wondering whether this was possible? So three years ago, um, I adopted a low-carb, high-fat diet, um, a ketogenic diet ketogenic diet and the whole purpose of that was to be more efficient at burning onboard fat for fuel and not being as dependent on carbs on glycogen and so three years ago when I first started to research it and learn about it there were two doctors I learned about named doctors Jeff Volick and Stephen Finney and they have a lot of good information on ketogenic diets for endurance athletes and it was Dr. Volick who said that everybody, even the thinnest person, somebody with as low as 7% body fat, has enough fat storage to last them for days. And so ever since I heard that, I've always wondered how far one can go um, running an ultra marathon simply relying on that fat storage. And, you know, for the past three years, I've done most of my long runs on Saturdays in a fasted state and I've felt just as good as I would have if I consumed a little bit of carbs. So I've always had the question on how far I could actually go fasted for three years now, but with the whole COVID thing happening and races canceling, it was, you know, a couple of months ago, I was finally just like, okay, I don't have any races. So I want to try to see how far I can go. Let's say a hundred miles is the goal. And I picked the date and went for it. So the last time you and I did a, did a, had a conversation like this, um, it was shortly after you had just won the triple crown of 200s. And I mean, you've just talked about you for three years now have been doing these, you know, your Saturday runs or longer runs in a fasted state. How though different did this look from when you were actually running like these triple crown races? What was your kind of food intake like during those? So, you know, the whole benefit of a ketogenic diet for an endurance athlete is you don't have to consume as many calories per hour as a more carb dependent athlete. And the benefit of that is less chance for GI stress. And then also less chance of having a bonk, like the the dreaded bonk, the wall that a lot of runners hit, just because you have so much more fat storage than you do glycogen storage. So you you essentially make yourself bonk proof. And so during these 200 mile races, I was still eating um, typical stuff that you'd see other runners eating. I just wasn't doing it as often where, you know, some runners are getting a couple hundred calories per 45 minutes to an hour. And I was doing maybe a hundred calories every couple of hours. So I was still eating. I was eating a lot of fruits, um, some potatoes and salts, but I just wasn't doing it as much. And because of that, I wasn't really having any GI stress. So that's kind of, that's kind of like the whole appeal to this diet. That's what got me into it in the first place was the, 
the theory that I wouldn't have as many GI issues and I would still have a sustainable amount of energy while I was racing. Because I, when I started ultra running, I was about 190 pounds, um, which is bigger for an ultra marathoner. And so I found myself in a cycle where, you know, I'd go into a race, I would try to eat as many calories as I felt I needed for a sustainable energy flow, but I would puke almost every race just because I had a hard time process- processing that food. Where the next race, I would go into it and be like, okay, I don't want to have stomach issues, so I'm going to try to eat less. And I might not have had stomach issues, but I, I bonked and I had no energy. So, so the whole reason I approached this lifestyle um, in terms of eating was because, like, you know, I wanted to be good at ultra marathoning and I, I wanted to be able to do it without suffering so much every race. I guess I'm curious if you're in a position to talk a little bit about, like, why might somebody check this out who really isn't about trying to perform at a high level while running long distances? Other advantages that you're aware of or other disadvantages or risks of a diet like this? Yeah, the thing that I've noticed with this style of eating, aside from like being bonk proof and less GI stress is, is how it impacts my recovery after the race, the event. Um, before, before like adopting the style of eating and before really like nailing it down because it took, it took some time before, like I, I became pretty strict with it because, you know, I was always looking for reasons to have a cheat day and so it took a while for me to be strict with it. And the thing I've noticed ever since being strict with it is I'm hardly ever inflamed. Um, I'm able to start running again a lot quicker after the actual race. Um, I'm not limping around as much. My legs aren't swollen. I just overall feel better. Um, and I can start running again a lot sooner. And I feel that even like people who aren't looking to be competitive in ultra marathoning, like you know, we're all doing this because we love running. And if we can reduce the amount of time that we're stuck in bed because we're injured or sore or tired, then I feel like we would find any kind of reason to to tackle that and not have to suffer that way. So recovery time is, recovery time being reduced is a big um, benefit to it. And then the other benefit too is just feeling like you don't have to be a slave to food. Um, the more strict you are with this, the less cravings you get. Like, you know, for example, I do a little bit of a carb load before I do a race. Um, nothing near like what you think of when you hear the term carb load. Um, for me, a carb load is just having a couple of servings of fruits, maybe a sweet potato, some vegetables. Um, you know, not the typical Olive Garden buffet that, that some runners are doing, but so by doing that, like, I'm oh, sorry. So yeah, I, I typically do a carb load like that, but it's gotten to the point where like doing a carb load is kind of a chore for me now, where I'd rather just not have that extra serving of potato and I'd rather just eat meat. I'd rather just stick to how it is just because I don't really care for those foods anymore. Um, I don't have the sugar cravings anymore. Um so yeah, just not being a slave to food and not having like the cravings and feeling like you're a slave and 
and you have to eat every couple of hours. Like you, you don't have to eat every couple of hours and still have a sustainable amount of energy in your day to day. So, so I'd say those two things are the biggest benefits, um, reduced recovery time and, and not having to feel like you have to eat every couple of hours or you're going to die. <laughs> so I want to ask a bit about then your preparation, you know, for this event. I mean, in some ways, I guess I'm inclined to think you didn't really change up a whole lot outside of your regular routine. How true or, or not true is that? I didn't necessarily change the foods I ate, but I did implement a lot more intermittent fasting in preparation for it. The past like few mo- few months, I've been gravitating between a keto and carnivore style of eating. Um, so, you know, for those people who haven't heard of carnivore, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just you only eat animal byproducts. <laughs> so most of my meals have been a carnivore style meal for the past few months. So what I've been doing um, that's different with that is instead of eating the typical three meals, I've just been about about four weeks before doing this, I, I shortened my eating window to six hours a day. So I would eat between 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. each day. Um, and it was typically some kind of steak, some like a tri-tip or a sirloin cap, um, some bacon, some eggs some shrimp. Um, and then once 7 PM hit, I wouldn't eat again until 1 PM the next day. And then what I would also include in there is I would do my run at 11 AM the next day, meaning that I was doing my run in a 16 hour fasted state. It was the telling of my fast. Um, I was running in ketosis every day. So I was just getting my body used to not eating as often as it's used to, and then running in a state of, of famine, basically, um, and being able to tap into the fat storage even more. So yeah, that was the biggest thing. Was just I started intermittent fasting about three weeks, four weeks before this, and only ate in a six-hour window every day. You know, you mentioned Jeff Browning was giving you some tips and coaching, and you were also, I know, talking a bit with Zach Bitter. I'm curious what Zach and Jeff were telling you, like to what extent it was stuff that was sort of novel and new that you hadn't really heard versus they were maybe helpful in just really trying to fine tune in certain elements of the prep and then the day itself. Yeah. So I talked to Jeff more than I did Zach just because Jeff is my coach. And so a lot of what Jeff and I talked about was he was the one that suggested doing the intermittent fasting for a few weeks. Um, he was the one that suggested doing my run at the end of that fast. So he's, he gave me most of my tips in preparation for doing this. Um, the thing that Zach Bitter helped me out with the most, he, he connected me with a professor in, I believe it was New Zealand, um, who's a little bit, who's pretty well versed in fat oxidation. Uh, the professor's name is Daniel Plews, I believe is how you say it. And so the biggest thing Zach was helping me out with is is pace. Um, Jeff, Jeff and I were talking and Jeff was saying that the target heart range that I should go for is between 122 and 130, just because that's prime fat burning heart rate for my age. 
And, you know, Jeff was telling me to shoot for 24 hours, but I was wanting to do 20 hours. And so I was talking to Zach a little bit more about the possibilities of doing it in under 20 hours. And so him and him and Daniel gave me this, like, you know, I, I don't understand, like, how how they put this together, but this professor has, like, a scale. You plug in some numbers, and it basically, like, you know, your max heart rate, and it, it calculates your energy output and all this stuff. And basically what they were helping me see is if it was possible to do sub-20 hours, so... That was the biggest thing they were helping me out with, but but Jeff Browning was the one that gave me most of the advice and preparation for it. So like Zach and Daniel, they basically what I got out of the conversation with them is that yes, sub twenty was possible for my current fitness state and and how fat adapted it seemed that I was based on like you know past fasted runs and how good I felt and all of that. So. So they just gave me the confidence that I needed, the, that it was possible to go at the pace that I wanted to do and not as slow as as others recommended that I go. There definitely were some comments to be found on <sighs> some of your social media posts. Uh, let's call them negative comments. Um, it, it was actually kind of blew my mind a bit for a couple of different reasons, but you've been doing these kind of experiments with fasting and intermittent fasting and the like. So you're, you're not new, I don't think, to hearing some of these criticisms. What's the most common criticism you get? So I would say the two biggest things that I see in terms of criticism for my style of eating are one that my, arter- my arteries are clogging. <laughs> that um, my cholesterol is going to be too high and just basically I'm going to die at a young age because of how much fat I eat. I hear that very, very often. Um, And then the other one is just with how much meat I eat that it's, you know, with emissions and stuff like that, how bad it is for our environment. Those are the two criticisms I get the most when when people hear how I eat. Do you get your cholesterol checked? (laughs) Um, Not regularly, but I did it once last year and everything was normal. Okay. And interesting enough too, um, you know, I have a history of colon cancer in my family. And before I eat it, started eating like this, I had to go in for a colonoscopy and they found a few polyps, um, <clears throat> which are, which are precancerous. So they had them removed and they're like, they told me that since I've had polyps, it's a good chance I'll keep getting them and that I have to get checked every couple of years now. Um, so when I first got checked, I, I had a couple polyps and then it was shortly after I started eating like this and my sister's a nurse and she told me that I'm just contributing to that and that I'm going to get more polyps and, and get colon cancer. And, um, ironically enough, the next time I went in to get checked and have a colonoscopy, I was told that, you know, there were no polyps, everything looked fine and that I could start coming in a lot less to get checked. So, so overall my health in different ways has, has improved since doing this. Um, everybody tells me that that's like not subjective or whatever, that it's not science. And it's just like, well, it's my personal experience. So I'm going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So if those were kind of the answers to the questions of like, what are the sort of the most common criticisms? What actually do you think the best criticism you get where you're like, well, they might have a point so the blanket answer I have is I don't feel that any criticism is correct. 
um, about how I eat. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, I'll, I'll preface that by saying that I don't feel that any diet is a one size fits all for everybody. So, you know, somebody that's seeing these kind of results on a vegan diet, then more power to them. Keep doing it. If that's, if you're seeing success from that, like, you know, that I I've tried other diets before, and this is the one that my body thrives off of. I, I strongly believe that our bodies each thrive off of different foods um, you know, you hear people like Courtney DeWalter who can eat her signature beer and nachos and candy and she's kicking all of our butts. <laughs> so, you know, everybody thrives off of different things. And, you know, for me, this is what my body thrives off of. So the criticisms that I hear, I understand that people are getting that from, you know, the mainstream media and some 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 studies that don't necessarily play into the whole aspect of keto like you know some of those studies could have been including processed meats or meats that you'd find at mcdonald's or wendy's and not clean whole grass-fed beef or anything like that so you know i get that there's studies out there that are showing people that this style of eating isn't good but to each their own is is i guess the the roundabout way i'm getting about that we each have our own thing that we thrive off of Diet just still to me feels like it is one of those areas where experimentation makes a lot of sense and figuring out what sort of diet allows us to feel good and, you know, and feel well and the rest. And so, yeah, sometimes the the dogmatism with which, especially when people are coming in just lobbing criticisms um, I don't know. I, I find it um, I find it interesting that there is such a force of um, my way is best. And just to play off of that really quickly, like the the one thing that I have seen a couple of times that like, there's not a lot that annoys me. Like I said, I understand why people say what they say just because of all the studies that are out there. I just feel that those studies aren't as complete as they should be. So I get why people criticize the way I eat and it doesn't bother me. But the thing I've seen a couple times that does bother me is I've seen somebody, a few people make the comment that, you know, who cares that you feel good? Like This is about being kind and you shouldn't be eating animals. And, you know, I'm I'm not for animal cruelty, like, you know, the, the big slaughterhouses and the like the, the dairies that you see that are beating cows before milking them or whatever, like I don't advocate for that at all, but um, I do feel that your diet should be something that makes you feel good. And if you're, if you don't agree with that, then that's kind of a backwards way to look at nutrition. Nutrition should make you feel good and you shouldn't do it just to, to make a point. So that, that's the thing that bothers me and I, people might disagree with me. I know people disagree with me, but your diet should very much be something that helps you feel good. Related question, I guess. I saw you taking some amount of flack just by announcing that, hey, like, I'm going to go try to do this, like, run 100 miles, no calories. And some people thought this is just an irresponsible thing to do and you're really going to hurt yourself. So, how much did you think about or try to calculate the risks of? setting off to run a hundred miles, no calories. It was very calculated. Um, I knew that there was a lot of risk to it. 
<clears throat> just because it's never been done. I've never done it. Um, so with that risk, I, you know, I went about it carefully. I talked to my coach and if he had, like he, he tried to tell me not to do it, but when he saw I wanted to do that, then we developed the plan to, on how to do it. So, you know, I, I designed a route that was out my front door. It finished at my front door. It was through Cache Valley. Um, I was going by friends and family's houses. I had cell phone service. I had people pacing me 85 out of, uh, out of 100 miles. So I had it set up where if something happened, I was going to have help pretty quickly. So I knew it was a risk, um, but... But with that, like the biggest criticism that I got and you saw it was that doing this is like a form of malnutrition. It's, it can be compared to an eating disorder that's just stupid and unnecessary um, on a health standpoint. And so like with that, like, and I get that we don't know people's stories, like maybe those criticisms came from somebody who's experienced an eating disorder. So it's a sensitive subject for them so I, I get that and I get that their criticism could have some meaning to it but <clears throat> when it comes to like nutrition I feel that like the reason America you see so much obesity here is just because of the mindset that we have to eat every couple of hours and if you've trained your body to be fat adapted um, to burn onboard fat you know, like, like I said earlier, we have, an, or, you know, Dr. Jeff Volick, he said, we have enough fat inside our bodies to last us for days. And so if you've trained your body to be efficient at fat burning, um, you're not, you're not malnourished. You're not setting yourself up to starve to death. Like we don't, we got to stop having the mindset where like 18 hours with, without food means that we're starving. <laughs> Like fasting is healthy for us. I, I wouldn't go as far to say that fasting while running a hundred miles is healthy, but I mean, if you're worried about the health of, if you're worried about the health aspect of this, then you probably shouldn't be running ultras because <laughs> subjectively ultras probably aren't healthy for you. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, I get the criticism, but you know, at the same time, like we got to stop thinking that just going X amount of time without food means that we're starving ourselves and and setting ourselves up to, to die from starvation. So, so I, I thought those criticisms were a little bit silly. Um, like I said, I might not understand why they had those thoughts. They might have experienced eating disorders themselves, but, but it's okay to go, to go a few hours without food. <laughs> yeah. When I saw that stuff, I mean, my, I don't know. I, I, when I heard that you were doing this, I mostly was just excited because I'm like, you seem like a great person to go try sort of this experiment was kind of how I was thinking of it. And because I know your background and I know how you live and how you train and that this wasn't just going to be something you went in flippantly um, to try. And, and this for me was just right up there with like kind of like let's see what human beings can or can't do type of thing. And I don't know, I just can't, I cannot find it in me to feel the force to criticize you for attempting this um, as opposed to just being excited to see like, let's see, let's see what Mike does here. I appreciate that. <laughs> and like, I mean, I feel like we're always sh shortchanging ourselves. 
like for what we're actually like our potential we're never even close to reaching our potential i believe and like in terms of like running um in a non-fasted state like i feel like so many people are just caught up in thinking that they can't do certain things without external help so it's like oh i can't run a marathon or 100 miles without eating every hour i need food every hour or else i'm just gonna fall over and have to crawl because i need that extra help i feel like we're just always looking for extra ways to like give ourselves boosts like you know the people who are addicted to caffeine because they need that cup of coffee to give them the energy that they don't feel they have i just feel we've we've like kind of softened ourselves up and like no we we obviously don't need calories every 45 minutes to help us run better so you know for for me this was just a test just to see if that is possible to go without those calories and and to hopefully show a few people that that you can do quite a bit of cool things without external help. So as May 8th was getting closer, what were you actually most worried about or concerned about? So the other guy that I know, Mikey Skylar, that tried this, his advice was, and this is almost word for word, he said, um, you can do this. Be sure not to go too hard because if you do, you're not going to experience the common ultra bonk. You're going to experience all out muscle failure. <laughs> and, and that's all he said. And that, you know, that, that phrase kind of scared me. So up to this point, 32 miles was the furthest I'd gone without calories. And so once I hit that distance from then on, I just kept having this nagging thought in my head, like, like what, what does he mean by all out muscle failure? Am I going to be running in are my legs just going to seize and am I going to fall over? And even though my brain's saying move, my legs are not going to move. <laughs> and I guess that doesn't necessarily answer your question because this was during the race um, that I was having that worry. But like leading up to the actual race, I didn't have a lot of worries. Like I was in my hometown. I was going past family and friends. Like I was in a, I was comfortable just because I was in my hometown and I was just, you know, confident that everything was going to work out, finish or not. So I didn't have a lot of worries leading up to it. Okay, so you were feeling pretty confident and feeling pretty good coming in. But at like mile 32, you started being like, um, is the proverbial shoe going to drop or something? Right. <laughs> uh, at some point in the next 68 miles. Right. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, that's kind of daunting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was very opposite of that. Like, it, like it just, I didn't have any big lows. I didn't have any like major highs. I was just kind of like in this steady, like flat line state where I was able just to like move forward with, without any issues. So it, it, it ended up being perfect, but I did have that worry in my head till about mile 92. <laughs> Um, I just kept, I, I just kept thinking, okay, any minute now my legs are going to give out and I'm going to fall over. But once I hit 92, I was pretty confident that they were going to get me to the finish. How were you feeling at mile 92? Like, were you like, man, I actually feel really good. Or you're like, no, I didn't feel great. I just ran 92 <laughs> miles, but I didn't think I was going to collapse. Yeah. I felt like I, I would at any 92 mile race, um, without food or with food. So um, the biggest thing I did notice though, was like 
any kind of hill that I hit, my heart rate spiked significantly. So um, I designed this route to be, it was 5,000 feet of gain, which for 100 miles isn't a ton. Um, but I designed it to have the 5,000 feet at the start, the first 30 miles. Hmm. And then once I hit 30, it was mostly flat till the finish. So just because I knew that hills would have some kind of effect on my heart rate, it just it affected it a little more than I thought it would. That was actually my next question to ask you about the course, because for some reason, despite the fact that you're probably best known for trail runs, I, for some reason, thought that this was going to be like a hundred miles on roads and, um, which isn't true. So how did you think about setting up the course? I mean, you said I wanted to have that elevation gain at the front, which kind of makes a lot of sense, but this wasn't all conducted on pavement, right? No, um, 70 miles of the, well, about 65 of the miles were on pavement. So the whole, like, you know, I'm in Cache Valley, Utah. It's still snowy up in the mountains right now. So a lot of our trails are still covered in snow. Um, we have a lot of access to the lower trails and stuff like that. So unless I wanted to do, like if I want to do all on trails, I was going to have to do a lot of like loops or out and backs. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do just one big loop. And the only way to do that was to include some pavement. And theoretically too, I'm signed up, assuming it doesn't cancel, it still hasn't canceled, but I'm supposed to do bad water this year. And that's 135 miles of road. So I figured it I could do this as kind of a training run for, for Badwater too to get more used to the pavement. Um, but yeah, I just sat down at my computer one day and pulled up a GPS creator, um, started clicking, and it was it was kind of ironic how perfect it was because I didn't have to edit anything. I just I dropped a pin at my front door and I started started working south, did a big loop, and by the time I got back to my house, it was exactly 100 miles. <laughs> so... The, the route was perfect. I didn't have to change anything from my initial creation. <laughs> but yeah, so to, to answer your elevation question too, like, you know, I live on the east bench in Cache Valley and that's where all the trails are. Um, so it wasn't like I was trying to put all the elevation gain at the start. It just happened to work out that way. I, I did all the trails, um, firsthand just because it was on the east side and then once I made my way out to the west side of the valley there was no more trails it was flat and then just kind of worked my way up north into Idaho and then back into Utah and and um so yeah it just worked out that way just because I wanted to do one big loop to to knock the elevation out at the start and let's talk a little bit about I mean you you were taking in on this run um, my understanding is water, salt, and magnesium. It was those and potassium. And potassium, um, okay. Yeah. So my initial plan was to just take S-caps um, with my water. And S-caps, they're called succeed caps. They have magnesium and salt. Um, just because even in a fasted state, you need electrolytes to reduce cramping, especially on a hot day. And it was fairly warm when I did this. So my original plan was just to take water and S caps, but um, Jeff and Mikey, the guy who tried this before, pointed out that technically capsules have calories in them. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's a trace amount, but it's enough to say I had some kind of calorie. <laughs> so I ended up buying a bag of Redmond Real Salt and a bag of magnesium citrate and a bag of potassium citrate. <laughs> and I put them each in their own bags, um, Ziploc baggies. And every hour to two hours, I would just lick my finger and then stick in the baggies and whatever stuck, I would suck off of my finger. <laughs> And then I would wash it down with my water and keep going. <laughs> it was nasty. I, I've never tried raw potassium before, and it's salt is salt. Like people know what salt tastes like. Magnesium doesn't have too much of a flavor. It's just kind of like a powdery substance. But potassium is like salt times ten. It's so bitter and nasty. Like <laughs> the first time I tried that, I just gagged. It was terrible. <laughs> So you said that you kind of just felt good throughout these hundred miles, aside from, you know, the daunting thought of like, when might the engine kind of give up the ghost, right? After mile 32. But really, like you, you wouldn't pinpoint a specific moment in these hundred miles that if there wasn't like the quintessential sort of, I don't know, not dark night of the soul, but like dark moment. You just, you did this hundred miles without that? Yeah. Like <laughs> I never, I never doubted if I would finish. Um, and that's like, usually when I have my darkest moment, I doubt whether I can finish and that never happened. The only time that I had like negative feelings where I was like, oh, this is so annoying. <laughs> Like, it was just annoyance is the best way to say it is, um, you know, I designed this route and I showed it to a friend who lives in the valley and he edited the route for me to make it so I didn't have to go on a couple busy roads in the area that he lived in. Um, and I was okay with that. Like, you know, I didn't want to be on busy roads. So I took his edit and went with that. But for some reason, um, and this is partially my fault for not looking over the whole route, but later he changed part of it to send me down about a two and a half mile railroad section. <laughs> and so I don't know why I did that, but I <laughs> like I'm going and I like my watch, I had the, the route on my watch and my wa watch starts beeping at me saying I'm off course. Huh. So I look down and I just start following it. And all of a sudden, like I'm on these railroad tracks and I'm following them for two miles. And up to that, this is about mile. So I experienced mile 50 on these railroad tracks. So that was what the mileage was. And up to this point, I was running at a very consistent pace, which is about, you know, anywhere between nine and 10 minute miles. And then I hit these railroad tracks and I couldn't run just because... It was super, it was like, I had a bunch of sharp rocks. It had the railroad ties. It was just really hard to run because my, my heart rate was spiking because like I was either trying to run on these uneven sharp rocks, which was hurting my feet, or I was trying to like skip the railroad ties, which was making my heart rate spike. So I ended up walking those full two and a half miles. And during those two and a half miles, I was just, I was kind of pissed and <laughs> I ended up slowing down a little bit after I got off of those railroad tracks just because I feel like I got out of my groove. But aside from that short, like, two-and-a-half-mile section where I was just a little bit more annoyed than anything, I didn't have any, any like, dark moments. <laughs> so you completed 
this route, what, 1837? Yes. How did you feel about that time? Great. I mean, Jeff told me to shoot for 24 hours and the sub 20 he felt was a little bit too fast. So the fact that I could, I mean, my PR for the 100 mile distance is 1620. And that was on a flat track at Desert Solstice. Uh-huh. So, I mean, the fact that this is one of my faster hundred times and it had a little bit of elevation gain and and no calories, like I, I was stoked. <laughs> but I was holding back. Like, I was given a heart rate range and was told to stick in it. I did venture out of that range slightly, um, but I, I was definitely controlling my pace. Um, so I'm stoked I was able to get that time while I was controlling my pace. I do feel though that I could increase my heart rate and, and run it faster. I feel like if I keep it in the, the Phil Maffetone range, then like if I keep it aerobic, then I'll be fine. If I go anaerobic, that's when I might be screwed. So, you know, for me in the theory behind like the Maffetone range is it's 180 minus your age, plus five if you haven't been injured for two years, and then plus 10 if you haven't been injured for five years. And so for me, that magic number is 160 beats per minute. So I feel that as long as I don't go over that range, then I'll I'll be fine. But somebody like Jeff Browning, who knows the science a little bit better than I do, might say otherwise. (laughs) He's like, calm down there, Mike. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Having done this, I'm curious if you have been thinking about, you know, races like the Bigfoot 200 or the Tahoe 200 or the Moab 240. Are you like, man, I proved some things to myself that is going to simply make me better when it is time to step up to some of these triple crown races what has that been sort of a a i've got to believe you've been thinking about this a little bit i'm just curious exactly how you've been thinking about it yeah i i haven't i wouldn't say i've been thinking about it at least for the 200s um so the way i have been thinking about it is i just i feel that i i have been holding back in some ways um with running um, like I know for a fact, there's no way I could do like what Zach Bitter's done on the track and <laughs> hold a 6:45 pace for a hundred miles. Like, you know, know your limitations. I know that that's a limitation of mine. Um, but I don't think it's out of the question for me to, <laughs> I don't know. This is just a broad answer. I, I, I feel like, I feel like I can shorten my times out quite a bit after doing this. Um, you know, I feel like I've been worrying, like even even after adapting keto, I feel like I've been worrying a little bit about nutrition too much during my races. Like, you know, the Bigfoot 200 last year, say there is a point where I was just like, okay, I haven't eaten for two hours. Theoretically, I should have some calories right now or else I'm in trouble. And so I would eat those calories and like my stomach just didn't want it. Like it was a hot part of the day. I, I, did, I had energy. So like in terms of an energy standpoint, I probably didn't need it. But in my mind, I was just like, it's been two hours. You need to eat. 
So I feel like the biggest thing this is doing for me is it's just opened my mind where it's just like when I'm in the middle of the race, if I don't feel like eating, then I have confidence that I'm going to be able to go for a couple more hours if I don't feel like eating and I'll be fine and, you know, just really only eat when I feel like eating in the middle of a race. So that's the biggest thing this has done for me is, is I do have the capacity to run at a fairly good pace without having to eat as much as I theoretically need to eat. And this is a really common thing you hear, right? That long distance races are eating contests. Exactly. It's like running with a buffet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm curious to ask you, just thinking now about sort of limits and human limits, what other types of boundaries have you maybe been thinking about where you're like, I wonder if we might be able to do this, even though it seems maybe impossible. I think of you as someone who's always kind of thinking about this sort of thing. So I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, since this is just such a big topic for me right now, since I just barely did it, I'm starting to wonder if 200 miles is a possibility (laughs) and going in a fasted state. So yeah, that's what's on my mind right now is wondering how far you can act. Like, Because, you know, the whole theory and reason I did this was to see if 100 miles was possible and I did 100 miles and I felt fine. So now the real question is just like, how many miles? So I guess not 200 miles, but just how many miles can somebody go relying simply on their fat storage? Let's talk a little bit about the recovery. I mean, you've talked about, you know, that there are advantages about the way you've been eating and training um, in terms of quicker recoveries. So you started at 6 a.m. on Friday the 8th, means you finished what time on Saturday morning? It was just before 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. Just be- Saturday morning. Just before 1 a.m. Yeah, so 12.37. What did you do? You get done. Did you go eat? <laughs> Pop a champagne bottle. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I had one of my sponsors is Gnarly Nutrition. They they make electrolytes for racing, and they also have a lot of good recovery stuff like protein and BCAAs, um, branched chain amino acids. So, first thing I had was one of their protein shakes, and then I showered and hopped in bed and tried to get a full night's sleep, <laughs> but. Um, I was pretty sore once I climbed in bed, and I wouldn't say it was from running in a fastest state, but more so running 70 miles on the road, and that's just something I'm not used to. So I had a hard time sleeping, but um, the biggest thing that I've, the whole, the biggest thing about this experience that's kind of taken me by surprise is my appetite is in complete opposite of what I thought it would be. Um, after most races, like I'm pretty ravenous. <laughs> I I eat a lot of food and um, I eat a lot of carbs. Like I wouldn't say I reward myself and might eat a bunch of junk food, but like I have a couple more servings of fruit. I have a couple servings of potatoes. Like I eat the normal stuff I do, but just a, a lot more. And so I kind of have to be like, okay, you're having too many carbs. Take it back a little bit. You probably shouldn't eat right now. It's 10 p.m. at night. <laughs> but this go around, like. You know, it's Wednesday and every day since finishing on Saturday, like I've had to force myself to eat just because I'm not hungry. Um, 
yesterday I only had one meal. I only had dinner and that was because I forced myself to eat dinner. And the day before that was the same thing. Sunday was the same thing. I'm just not hungry for some reason. (laughs) And it's like backwards. And I know that I need to be eating to recover. So like, you know, I'm forcing myself to eat, but if I if I didn't want to recover, then I, I just wouldn't be eating because I'm not hungry. Um, and we're talking on Wednesday the 13th. I seem to see something on social that you're already back and running. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like my legs and stuff, like I feel great for like I... And that's the other backwards thing too. Like I don't feel like I've ran a hundred miles. Like usually I take five days to seven days off from running and focus on biking or just relaxing. But yesterday, Tuesday, the 12th, I, you know, I woke up, my legs felt great. I wasn't inflamed at all and decided to go for a run. And I picked a trail that I do all the time that has some pretty steep sections that I end up power hiking usually, but but yesterday I was able to run every step of it and I felt really good. So in terms of recovery on that side of things, like things are going good and I'm back to running already. So yeah, th- th- those are the two weirdest things about this. I feel like I re- recovered faster and that I'm running a lot quicker than I would at this point with any other hundred mile experience. And then I'm just, I'm not hungry. And then just the whole, like everything going perfectly too. <laughs> Those are like the three things that kind of took me by surprise. <laughs> so what do you think is next? I mean, you mentioned Badwater. Is that is that the first race if we can do things like, you know, hold races again? Um, I figured it would be any day now if Badwater's canceled that they'll announce it. So I'm just kind of waiting for that. And then if Badwater is canceled, then I'll figure out another adventure that I can participate in. I am plan like in terms of the whole year thing, like I've signed up for the Bear 100 here in Logan, which is September. And then I plan on reaching out to USATF um, sometime and seeing if we can make like fasted running or like a non-calorie run, like a world record attempt. And if, and if they agree, then I'll probably go out to Desert Solstice in December and, and go for like the official record for it. Very interesting, man. Well, hey, I'm just going to keep rooting you on and I look forward to uh, seeing what's next. And man, I, I sure hope this Badwater thing does happen and uh, I'll, I'll maybe show up with a big, you know, foam finger <laughs> to, uh, to cheer you on or something like that. So thank you. <laughs> You're one of the ones I really enjoy talking to, so I appreciate you having me on again. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Mike for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, we hope that you are all doing well. And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.